Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Well, welcome back to the show, everybody. This week, I have Anne Ordain. Now, Anne Ordain is, of course, New Zealand's, one of New Zealand's top female runners. She has been six times uh, qualified for the Olympics, world record holder. She's incredibly successful um, in both marathons and shorter distances. Uh, and back in the early 80s, was just unbeaten in America with all the road races that she ran. And she was a real pioneer um, of women's professional sport. So I hope you enjoy this um, in- interview with the amazing Anne Aldane. Um Before we head over to the show, just want to remind you to please check out what we do. We, we love uh, making this content. We love sharing all of these great insights with you. We're very passionate about health, fitness, about the latest in health science and medicine. Um, and we would love to work with you if you want to improve your game as far as running goes or high performance, or if you've got a difficult health journey, then check out our epigenetics program, look at our DNA programs, our running coaching programs, um, as well as our longevity and anti-aging supplements. Very much into longevity and anti-aging. When you hit your 50s, you, you want to make sure you're going backwards if you can. So check out uh, a nicotinamide mononucleotide as our main anti-aging supplement, and we also have trimethylglycine. You can check that one out at NMN bio.nz that's nmnbio.nz and all the other stuff you can check out on my main website at lisatarmati.com right over to the show now with Anne Ordain hey everyone welcome to the show today I have the amazing legend of the running sport Anne Ordain Anne welcome to the show it's fantastic to have you here and it's great to meet you too (laughs) <laughs> you are sitting in Indiana. You've made your home in the States. Why are you not in New Zealand? <laughs> oh, I wish. Well, of course, in the last few years, we can't even get there. So oh. you know, that's kind of put a stop to all that. But I've pretty much come back every year um, through all these years. I've been in the wow. States 40 years now, and, and I miss New Zealand. But it's where my sport and life took me. And so, you know, you got to take everything that comes at you. I took a chance on you know, coming here to run way back 40 years ago, and here I am. And here you are today, still still happy and healthy in, in Indiana. <laughs> Always yes. reminds me of Indiana Jones. <laughs> yep. Uh, so, Anne, I want to go diving into your, your story because it's quite a remarkable story. I mean, you've been showered with accolades uh, for your amazing running career. You, you've won more road races than I think any other athlete back in the day. You've um, you've qualified for the Olympics six times. You've done all these incredible things, shall we? And I'll let you tell your story in your words. But uh, it didn't all start out roses. Can you take us back to a little bit to your, you know, the, the, the troubles you had in your childhood? Well, I was given up um, for adoption by a teenage mum. And um, when it came time, I was a baby, and when it came time for me to start walking, my parents noticed I didn't exactly use my feet real well, but of course, child can't exactly explain everything that's going on. Um, To put it simply, I walked on my heels. I wouldn't go forward on my toes. And as I grew, um, some bone deformities grew on the front part of my feet. And the doctors told my parents that they weren't going to consider surgery until I was a teenager and my bones were strong enough to take the necessary surgery. And so all through my childhood, it was very painful and I didn't walk correctly and I couldn't wear proper shoes 
And um, so when I was 13 years old, they put me into Middlemore Hospital and the orthopedic surgeons told my parents that all they really wanted was to help me to walk better. And um, so they did surgery and took away all the excess bone, transplanted tendons to my big toes. Wow. And really the genius of them, which I don't think you know many doctors here in the United States would actually risk, was that when it came time to leave the hospital, they uh, didn't give me crutches or a wheelchair. They put, they created, I always joke that I'm probably the one that had those orthopedic boots that they have now. I was the first. Uh, so the surgeon, they created a black leather boot to attach to the plaster casts. And on the bottom of the black leather boot, they had a wooden rocker, like a rocking horse. Yep, so yep. their idea was that when uh, I, then I walked out of that hospital on those boots with feet that had not healed. Wow. And what their goal was, was to push me forward uh, yes. as my feet, they forced me forward because they thought my memory of walking on my heels and very pigeon-toed would not go away. So unless they forced me forward, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, makes so sense. That, yep. Yes, it, it yep. does make a lot of sense. And they gave me my running style. I, wow. I mean, when I those casts came off, it was easier to run than it was to walk. Wow, because you were able to put, because I'm, you know, I have a, a, a mum who's had an aneurysm and we've been dealing with a stroke and aneurysm and she cannot roll her foot, you know, and she has drop foot and it, the foot is, is stiff on the, on the left side and she won't push off. And it's mm. really hard to retrain your brain when your brain is saying no, you know, <laughs> it's not how yes. it's done. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and as a youngster, you know, you've you've spent all your life walking a certain way. They just didn't believe that even mm. no amount of rehab would force me forward if I didn't do it, or if they didn't force me wow. forward. Yeah, and they did. Yeah, wow. So that made you push off nicely. And, yes. And, and how long did it take for you to like? You, so you you got the boots off, and then you just basically said, you know, you were it was easier for you to run than to walk. Because you had that rocker when you were leaning forward, I suppose you were, you were in that yes. position to, to – to, so you ran everywhere? Yeah, yeah I did, and, and uh, I joined the Otahu Athletic Club in South Auckland because, you know, New Zealand system is all the club system and all my neighbours, you know, the kids at school, the neighbourhood kids, all belong to the Otahu Athletic Club. And so I just told my parents I wanted to join it too. And <laughs> uh, so I just joined the Otahu Athletic Club to, one year later one year at age 14 and um and so I joined and of course back then girls were only allowed to run as far as a quarter mile the young girls <laughs> so you know I tried everything I tried long jumping and high jumping and um was pretty fearful with that because I didn't exactly want to land hard yeah. on on new feet but I found that I love to run and ran the 100 200 400 meters and um, a person from the club entered me in the Auckland Senior 800-meter champs um, when I was 14 years of age, and I finished third in the Senior Championships. Wow. And that's when my first coach, who was coaching at the Otahu Athletic Club, um, asked me to join the squad that he had, and that's where it all started. Wow. And so, so woman back back then, this is what, what your sort of year or what, you know, 70s. What, 1970s. Yeah, 70s. And so yeah. and girls in athletics clubs weren't even allowed to go more than a quarter of a mile. 
Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. even worse. That's, that's yeah. a- <laughs> well, the longest distance, when I began running, the longest distance in the Olympic Games for women was 800 metres. Wow. They, that's they put the insane. Yeah, they put the 1,500 metres into Munich in 1972. Wow, that's just that's crazy. I, I had, um, uh, I'm friends with Catherine Switzer. You mm-hmm. probably know Catherine. Um, and, you know, the 1968, you know, her going in the marathon, you know, like – being told basically, you know, back then that your, your uterus would fall out if you're a woman and you couldn't <laughs> run a marathon. And now, of course, you know, ultra marathon runners run hundreds of kilometers and yes. nothing's, nothing's fallen out yet. No. <laughs> um, and so, it's, you know, in, in a short space of time, women's athletics has changed drastically. And you're actually a big part of that, really, in, in, in a number of ways, which I hope to dig into today. Um, so, but, but tell us about progressing from there. So, you went. You were obviously a talented, like genetically, you must have had some brilliance, you know, like as far as mm-hmm. your speed and that went. Um, did your birth parents, who you got to know later on, I believe, uh, were they genetically gifted at all? What was the story Not there? in terms of um, nothing. Nobody in the family did athletics. They were dairy farmers in the Waikato. Mm-hmm. Um, I have six siblings, four wow. siblings, because my birth parents married each other a year after I was born. So I have six younger brothers and sisters, and it was a farming family, and so they didn't participate in sports um, as such. And, um, you know, I would say that my my birth father was Dutch and just a real strong, hearty Dutchman, and but no, no, I mean, they didn't. Yeah. Obviously, obviously there was <laughs> some yeah, genetics there, but they didn't realize it. Um, yeah. And you're the only one in the family to have gone to a, a career like this. Yes. Um, and, and so tell us about your progression then through your early years and coming into, you know, some of the major league stuff. Well, um, I, let's see. I, I think the beauty of New Zealand is compared to here in the United States is we're more free to do what we want in terms of sport. Here, I would never have been given the chances to do what I did in regards just being able to step into those senior races uh, and race against senior women. And so I started racing cross country in the senior races um, at age 14 and 15. Uh, at age at age 15, I won the um, New Zealand road championships wow. uh, in the senior category. And uh Auckland versus Waikato, I would race against the senior women. And then in 72, I was 16 years of age, and I raced in the New Zealand Championships in the 1,500 metres and actually ran a time that was the Olympic qualifying standard to go to Munich. And I was chosen in the team but was pulled out with three weeks to go because they considered I was too young. And and that's probably correct. Um, And so... It, yes, every dream is to go to the Olympic Games, and you can always look back and say it might have been my one and only chance. But in some respects, when you remember the Olympic Games and the massacre of the Israeli athletes oh, in yeah. the Olympic Village, um, the New Zealand team was housed right by the Israeli athletes, wow. and so they they were pretty traumatized by that. And so, as a sixteen-year-old, um, it's a good thing I didn't go. Absolutely. And then at age seventeen. I got selected to go in the New Zealand cross-country team to the World Championships in Belgium, and uh, I finished ninth in the World Championships at 17 years of age. So 
you're right. I mean, I I kind of got you know pretty good um, uh, sight into the fact that um, I I did have a talent, and from then on it was finishing high school, going to teachers' college, becoming a school teacher, uh, representing New Zealand again in uh, 75, 77, 79, 81 in the World Cross Country. We, we only went every alternate year because um, for the finances, they couldn't afford to send a cross-country team every year. Mm-hmm. So I had all of that and uh, went to Montreal in 1976 at age 20, it was my first year of school teaching, which was in um, Otara in South Auckland. And I went in the 800 and 1500 metres. And by that point, I was a uh, New Zealand record holder and uh, won the New Zealand championships in 800 and 1500 metres. So you could say the first 11 years of my career was done as an amateur, uh, as a school teacher. Uh, representing New Zealand many, many times. So what I was getting out of my sport then was a whole bunch of world travel for yeah. free. Yeah. Which which was absolutely amazing. Yeah. But who knew where it was all going to go? So I, I split my career into it was a 22-year career, 11 years as an amateur, and then things could have gone backwards. Or forwards. Yes. And, yeah. And Who this knew? is interesting. Yeah. Who knew? So you, you yeah. took a bit of a stand, uh, like, because this was very, uh, you know, like the, the amateur rulings and stuff back then were very, very, very strict. Uh, and I remember, you know, growing up and, and knowing, uh, you know, what amateur and professional was. And um, so you took a bit of a stand in one of your races and actually took some prize money. Um, and, and that sort of pioneered the way, really. Was that a really difficult decision for you to make to, to, to do that? Well, you know, what's interesting is there's a documentary finally being made this year here in the States about that year, which was 1981. Mm-hmm. And I had left New Zealand with my first husband and we were going to go to England um, and, and see, you know, what, what we were going to do in England. He wanted to go and work in England again. And so I got my airfare to England by getting into that New Zealand cross-country team to go to Madrid in March of 1981. So I had no intentions of any future in the sport. I took it that this was it, and I got my airfare paid for, and we were going to stay in England, and Lord knows what I was going to do. So while I was there, uh, Rod Dixon was in the team with us, and he said to me, you know, because – Dick Quacks and Rod had already been on the United States road racing circuit for about two years. And Lorraine Moller had gone there too and had had run a marathon, I believe, or maybe two marathons. And so Rod said to me, you know, Annie, you should go to the States and you really should try the road racing because he says, I think that's going to be your niche. You've got to try those middle distance. You've got to go to those distances. And yeah. so I thought, okay, why not, you know? So came to the United States and Big Quacks got me into a 10K down in New Orleans. And we fly into New Orleans and, and uh, this is kind of a cute story. So um, I arrive at the airport and, and I get picked up by a limousine and get taken to this fancy hotel and, and never seen a hotel room like it. 
And I thought, my Lord, it's like, who do they really think I am? And I was, <laughs> this is how they treat runners this in the United nice. States? Yeah. Like, really? And they said, well, we need you to come down to the press conference. So I go downstairs and there's a big room set up and the table's up the front with all the microphones. And I just go sit in the audience. Like, okay, I'll come to the press conference. Oh, no, 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 no. You need to be up there uh, with the other athletes. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my goodness. So I go up there and I think, well, maybe it's just because I'm a New Zealander. And so, you know, an international field, in other yes. words, they got a New Zealander up here. So there was Bill Rogers, Frank Shorter. I mean, good Lord, I'll say names that these yeah. days a lot of people won't even know. Joan Benoit Samuelson. Jackie Garreau, who had just won Boston. So great fields. Yeah. And I got myself on the end of the table, and they started at the other end asking questions and interviewing. And then remembering that Dick Quacks had got me into this race. So then they get to me, and the uh, MC says, well, what you've run an amazing time for a 10K. What do you think you're going to do tomorrow? I'd never run 10K in my life. Oh. And I never, and this is going to be my first 10K. And I was quick enough to realize that Dick had probably told them that <laughs> I'd raced a 10K and he'd given them a time. Oh, so no. I had no idea. And all I said was, Fake it till you make it. <laughs> yes. And all I said was, Well, I think tomorrow I've got a shot at my best time. Because yeah, <laughs> it was going to be my best time. <laughs> <laughs> well done. I've won before, so that wasn't lying. <laughs> <laughs> that was a brilliant way to get out of dawn. <laughs> so, yeah, the next day I finished third, and wow. the American girl, Patty Catalano, ran an American record. Joan Benoit Samuelson, who eventually went on to win the first Olympic women's marathon in 84, she finished second. Wow. And I ran third in 33 minutes and 18 seconds. <laughs> That's but <eight>. then <laughs> they're saying to me, well, my goodness, that's amazing. You just beat your PR by a minute. So that's when I got that's when I got to know what Dick had said. <laughs> Good old Dick. Yeah. <laughs> he got you and got you started. And, yes, and then, he sure did. Just interrupting the program briefly to let you know that we have a new patron program for the podcast. Now, if you enjoy pushing the limits, if you get great value out of it, we would love you to come and join our patron membership program. We've been doing this now for five and a half years, and we need your help to keep it on air. It's been a public service free for everybody and we want to keep it that way but to do that we need like-minded souls who are on this mission with us to help us out so if you're interested in becoming a patron for pushing the limits podcast then check out everything on patron.lisatamati.com that's p-a-t-r-o-n dot lisatamati.com we have two patron levels to choose from you can do it for as little as seven dollars a month new zealand or fifteen dollars a month if you really want to support us so we we are grateful if you do there are so many members benefits you're going to get if you join us everything from workbooks for all the podcasts the strength guide for runners uh, the power to vote on future episodes uh, webinars that we're going to be holding all of my documentaries and much much more so check out all the details patron.lisatamati.com and thanks very much for joining us so the circuit in America, these road races were uh, paid races. That was the 
So you, you know, did you start then to, you know, earn a living out of this? Oh, no, not at all. No. Um, after that race, I got invited to go to stay with um, uh, Jeff Galloway and his wife in Atlanta, Georgia. And Jeff had been um, an Olympian for the United States in the marathon, but it was all the 1980 boycott. So Ian got to go. So he had started up involved with the big Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, uh, a 10K. And he just, he just said, why don't you come? and stay with us for a while, and we'll tell you what possibly is going to happen here in the United States. But up until then, there was nothing. You just ran the races and got a trophy. Wow. Um, and so there was nothing. It was totally amateur. But there was um, the road race directors wanted the sport to go professional because they were tired of the under-the-table payments that they yeah. were having to give out predominantly to the men. Yes. And so they wanted it to change. And then Phil Knight, who was the founder of Nike, uh, and Nike back then in, in 1981 was just a small group of offices in Oregon, wow. nothing, nothing like it is now. And they were making the shoes in a little factory in Oregon. And Phil Knight wanted to put up, um, he wanted the sport to change too because obviously he's producing running shoes, but he can't use the runners to you can't sponsor yeah. the runners. It's completely right. illegal. Yep. So anyway, it was just amazing how people, they put me up in their homes. I went and ran some other races. I got given 100 bucks at a time to go talk in a running shoe store. Wow. Um, people were just amazing. Uh, the hospitality, how enthusiastic they were to create this road racing circuit and make Brilliant. it professional. Well, you know, you were going to be up against um, United States Track and Field, which back then was called the Athletics Congress. And so everybody who wanted to run in a road race had to be a member of the Athletics Congress. So they had a real hold yep. on the sport and they yep. wanted to keep their hold on the sport. That led to the Olympic Games and no one yep. wanted the Olympic Games to be professional. So there was going to be a huge battle ahead. So in June of 81, I turned up in Portland, Oregon to race a 15-kilometer race, and uh, there was going to be $10,000 first prize, a total of $50,000 spread between the men and the women's field. Wow. The greatest thing that happened was that there was going to be equal prize money immediately. Amazing. Equal prize money for male and females. That's right. Yeah. I think it's the first sport. Wow. The first thing, first oh. first professional race, they made it equal immediately. So I wow. give them all credit for that. Yeah. So it was going to be $10,000 first prize. And I had no money left. In fact, I was pretty much two weeks away from packing up and quitting. Wow. And, go, and going crazy. to England. Two yeah. weeks away. So I went there and they had a big meeting the night before and they got us to sign documents to say that, if we finished in the top 10 the next day, would we or wouldn't we accept the prize money? And did we understand what the consequences were going to be and that there was going to be a big battle ahead? And so I was all in. Because yeah. I travelled in Europe. What did you have to lose? <laughs> I, I didn't have anything to lose. And I exactly. thought if I finish fifth or sixth, I'd earn enough money to stay a little bit longer. Um to see what I could do. Yep. And I'd also travelled in Europe with our guys on the European track circuit 
in the 70s and I'd seen all the under the table money. Wow. Uh, so I just thought I deserve it too. If I yeah. can earn if I can earn money out of my talent, then I want the same chance. And so the next day, you know, that good old running style I had, it was 15 kilometers and it was uh, five, five miles uphill and four miles down. Wow. And I just got into the rhythm going up the hill and realized that I was just running so much easier than the others. And so I just went for it. And I got to the top of the hill and I was quite a way in front. And I thought, oh, boy, all I have to do is get down this hill and I've won, you know. And so I did win and I get $10,000. And the moment I cross the finish line, I'm in all sorts of trouble because yes. I'm only in the United States on a visitor's visa. Oh, God. And that's illegal to have accepted the money. Oh, God. You've got the United that States well. tax, tax folks there. Um, and then I immediately get a lifetime ban from the sport. Mm. Um, I've even How got crazy. The, yeah, I've still got the telegrams <laughs> for, for the New Ze- from the New Zealand Amateur Athletic Federation, as it was then. Um, so anyway, I, um, you know, my parents were devastated. They just thought, you know, you've really messed up your life. But, <laughs> it, it, you know, it was, yeah, I was 25 years old. And, and you've got to make a living. You know, yeah, i got to make a living. Life to um, and so the beauty of it was that the United States road race directors ignored the ban. So I raced again in another five days at the Beechtree Road Race in wow. Atlanta. And I went on to continue road racing that year. And at the end of 81, I'd earned $22,000 in prize money. I'd also got a Nike contract, which has since been proven because of this documentary being done this year, that I am the legitimate first female runner to sign with Nike. Brilliant. And it was three three days after that race, and I um, worked out a contract on a table napkin at an <laughs> ice cream store in Atlanta, and it was for $400 a month. Wow. $400 <laughs> a month, and I thought I just won the lottery. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, and how did I mean, you get it, around it changed the my life. How did you get around the tax stuff with the U.S. government tax Well, stuff? There, there was um, an agreement between New Zealand and, and the United States where you can choose. I mean, it took a lot because I was in trouble immigration-wise as well. So yeah. I had all of that to work out. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, you, you, you have to get a tax ID. So I chose at that point to become an uh, American taxpayer. Yep. And, so, and, and I have been ever since. And so, um, and then I had to deal with the immigration. So at the end of 81, I pretty much was deported. I was told (laughs) to go back to New Zealand, go to the United States Embassy and work out what status I needed to be able to come back to the United States. Um, And so, you know, it was absolutely crazy time and just because I said of this documentary being done I had to relive all of it get out my scrapbooks and and all the articles and everything and the headlines and you just go oh boy (laughs) you really 
it really shook up my life and, and the whole sport. <laughs> yeah, but it takes a brave soul to do something like that. And, of course, now we take that all, you know, for granted that, that that's that's how it's all gone. But, you know, someone has to be the first and someone has to take that brave step. And, and it's ridiculous, you know, like you're, you're dedicating your life to your sport and why can't you make a living from it? I always thought it was ridiculous anyway, and I was only a kid back then. But, <laughs> you know, well, and it pioneered I, the way. But I remember after it happened was that, you know, rugby, the All Blacks were were amateur. And I remember some conversations where the the All Blacks were just, how come a bunch of female runners are getting paid (laughs) and we can't? So I think it shook up a lot of sports. I mean, it certainly changed the, it's changed track and field. It changed the Olympic Games. Um, It opened up the, you know, look at what's happening now, even here, in the collegiate system here in the United States, they're now allowing the college athletes to have sponsorships uh, agreements. Um, I just read where the 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 gals, the rugby sevens, yeah, it, or the, yeah, yep. the yep. Yep. ferns, yep. Um, are going to be allowed, you know, to kind of be paid so they don't have to have uh, jobs yeah. and try and be athletes at the same time. Yeah, because I, I read the yeah, I, I read the comments on that and. And I just thought, you know, you don't, I'm a perfect example of becoming good as an amateur and becoming great the moment I was able to be a full-time athlete. Of course. I'm a perfect example of that. There's no going backwards. And so all these people go, well, they should be doing it for the love of their country and so forth. Well, I did it for the love of my country, you know, for 11 years and I was almost lost. Yes, and exactly. I wouldn't be, yeah, I wouldn't be sitting here with another 11 years of even better accomplishments if I had not been professional. Yes. And, you know, it's just, it's just to me, it's just a ridiculous argument if you're going to see, because you have to dedicate your entire life to this if you want to mm-hmm. be really good. Like, I, of course, I'm, my sport is a really a weirdo sport, right? Ultra marathoning, we're a bunch of eccentric weirdos who run around. <laughs> for, so, and, and my dream and was to represent New Zealand just just once, you know. So yes. and I spent and I spent years and, and I, you know, tried it with different sports and I failed and you know my dad was really keen for me to represent New Zealand. <laughs> it took me till I was 42 and my on my eighth attempt of doing 24 hour races where you, you run around okay. track for 24 hours. You'd yes. have an idea of what that actually means because that's you know, uh, twenty five laps. Twenty twenty five laps is as far as I've gone on it. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, at a hell of a speed. And and and, and when you're doing a twenty four hour race, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. Yeah. You know, like the, the 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 qualification for the the world champs was one hundred eighty five k's. It took me eight attempts at failing at the one hundred eighty five k's. You know, working up from yeah. one hundred forty to one hundred sixty, then finally. And on this one day, I managed to do one hundred ninety four point three kilometers in twenty four hours. Was uh, at the age of forty-two before I represented New Zealand, and you know what the the New Zealand Athletics Association told us after after all of that effort, not only will we have to pay everything to go to the World Champs, but they banned us from going to the World Champs. They wouldn't let us go, even though I'd finally qualified. That was gutting. Oh. That was gutting, and that was I got to go to the Commonwealth Champs. And uh-huh. uh, um, we had to, we, we didn't even get a singlet, you know. And I know our sport is not a mainstream sport, but when you put 20 years' effort yeah. into getting there, and, and this is only, you know, 
this is only 10 years ago. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, that's, that's shit, in my opinion. You know, when you've, when you've yeah. given so, so much and when, you, when your sport is a brutal sport, I mean, to, to run 194Ks in 24 hours is pretty bloody, you know, extreme. Um, it, it's, it's a shame, you know. And I did that once and I got the silver fern and I gave it to my dad and he stuck it on his wall and that was yeah. me done. You know, that was me done yeah. from that. And and. and in a, in a very much, much smaller way than you, I pioneered a little bit of a wave for ultramarathoning to make a living, right? So I managed to make a living from my sport for a number of years and, <clears throat> and through sponsorships and through yes. – um, and, and I also learned to, you know, market myself, speak, mm-hmm. present, you know, get yes. teams on board, all of these things that you learn in order to just get enough to survive. Now, it was no yes. – by no means was, you know, I going to be uh, – uh, rich, <laughs> but the North yeah. Face, the North Face were my uh, sponsors for for many years. But then lots of other co- companies like Toyota and and so on who had who'd come in and sponsored various things and some local firms like Taranaki Engineering and you know mm-hmm. just enough to get through, you know. Um, yes. And so you 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 paved the way not only you know for the for the mainstream sport but also for the little sports like like that, you know. To make it to to find a way to go. No, I, I, okay, there is no path. I'm going to pioneer a path. I'm going to make one happen. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, who knew? I mean, to be honest, I mean, I, you you took a chance. I trusted the people that were involved. Um, Phil Knight put up the money to hire all the legal. I mean, I what where it really cost me is I had to hire an immigration lawyer. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that's you know because I needed somebody here in the United States to be helping me while I was down in New Zealand and then, you know, to get the proper visa. And I was one of the first where they established this H-1B visa, which is now what all the sports people from around the world are coming into the United States on Mm -hmm. because it allows them to come in here and earn the prize money here in the United States. Ah. It's a special, special visa for that. And uh, all those sorts of things had to come into play. Now, the ban in terms of, um, I mean, the fact that I even got to go to the Commonwealth Games, um, you know, I, I have no time. The New Zealand uh, athletic uh, powers that be were not helpful. They, yeah. They've yeah. kind of got an alternative version of this story, which mm-hmm. is very interesting because mm-hmm. they've kind of got some claims now on the timelines of things where, I go back through my scrapbooks and they're trying to say they reinstated us like in August of 81, but I've got headlines that say, oh, no, weren't reinstated until February of 82. Yep. So, you know, they've got a revisionist history of the timeline and, oh, no, they supported, oh, no, they were right, but no, they were I can quite weren't. believe it. I can quite they believe weren't. it. They weren't. And so they made it hard. I mean, I didn't get reinstated until a week before I raced in Brisbane in the Commonwealth wow. Games. Wow. I flew, to Bris- I flew to Brisbane not knowing whether I was going to be reinstated in time to run. Wow, this is crazy, eh? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I can truly believe that. There's a lot of bureaucrats and places like that that shouldn't be there. <laughs> Probably never run themselves. Well, and it's still happening though. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I follow the, I follow the, 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 some of the athletes that really should have been you know, at, at um, the Olympics or, I mean, how do you grow athletes if you don't give them a chance when they're young? Yeah. I mean, look at the chances I got at, at 17 and 18 and 19, 20 being in New Zealand teams. 
um, got so much experience on the world stage at such a young age, and now they're making it so hard where you've kind of got to be way, way up there to get on a New Zealand team. But how do you get to be that good if you're not giving the opportunity to grow and experience while you're young? Yes. It just doesn't make sense. I, would, I read it. I follow everything. Yeah. Still, <laughs> yeah, that's I think going we've, on. We've both got a bit of a beef with that. <laughs> some, yeah. some, some of the things that happen, and, and the way some treat, athletes are treated, and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, stuff that's not so great. But then you went on to do the Commonwealth Champs, and from there on in, I mean, you qualified for the Olympics six times, mm-hmm. and you you have world records. Let's just go over some of your achievements because they're pretty, you know, phenomenal. <laughs> well, I I set the world record in the 5,000 metres at Mount Smart Stadium, and that was the first time I'd ever raced the 5,000 metres on the track. <laughs> wow. And, and then the following, you know, in October of 82, I got the gold medal. My best year was 1982. I went undefeated here in the United States and broke the course records of every single race that I ran in. So oh. there's the difference. You know, you really think in 81 I was two weeks away from being gone from the sport. And in 82, I had a world record, a gold medal, and was unbeaten. So there's the difference my decision made in my life. The other big decision I made at the end of 80 was to quit with my first coach and join my second coach, John Davies. So I'd be very remiss if I don't add him to the equation Mm. of the two decisions I made. First was to change coaches, and secondly, was to come to the United States and make the decision to turn pro. And it gave me another 11 years. Wow. It gave me another yeah. 11 years. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I, I qualified for 72. I went in 76. I qualified for Moscow. There was the boycott. I went in 84 and ran the marathon because there was nothing for me in 84. It went all – they didn't put the five and 10,000 metres into the Olympics in 84. Really? They went all the way to – they went all the way to the marathon. Oh wow! I didn't know. So we that. didn't get women didn't get full equality in the Olympic Games until Atlanta in '96. Wow. It wasn't until '96 they put the five thousand meters in. So I lost my window of opportunity in the five and ten thousand meters. And then in in '88, I mean, I think '84 would have been my time in the Olympic Games if the five and 10,000 metres had been put in. Wow. Um, I went to Seoul in 88, but I was 34 years old then. Yeah. Um, 34, 30, yeah. So so anyway, and I, I finished 11th in the final in Seoul, but I think 84 would have been my yep. opportunity. You have a very short window. Been a, mm. And then I qualified for Barcelona, but I was, I was just tired of the – uh, I I retired at the end of ninety two. Yeah, uh, I, at the I could age have gone of thirty six. Yeah, thirty six. Yes. Yeah, and well, and I didn't I didn't retire um, because of the physical side. I actually retired because of the mental. Yeah. Um, because I'd had twenty two years, and I really had stayed very healthy. So it was twenty two very intense years. Yeah. Of not only running the American the second 11 years of running the American road racing system and speaking of New Zealand selectors, they would never recognize anything I did here in the United States. I had to come back to New Zealand and run in a New Zealand track season to run qualifying times. Uh, yeah. So I was compete. I was competing year round. 
Oh, wow. So, yeah, so at 36, I mean, you've been, luckily with injuries, you hadn't had anything after your, you know, your leg surgery as a, uh-huh. as a teenager. Um, but mentally, there comes a point, doesn't there, when you go, I've, I remember reading somewhere, uh, you know, you, you were no longer nervous. And to you, that was a sign that mm-hmm. actually you're no longer in the game, you know, like your, yes. your head's no longer in the game. And even though you lost my focus, yes, yeah. yes, I, I lost the discipline and the focus. Yeah, and I was starting to cut corners. Yeah, and I knew that would bring bad results. And I would sit in a hotel room and I wouldn't be nervous anymore. And I thought, I'm just taking this for granted now. I'm yeah. just going through the motions. Yeah, and integrity wise, I it was a matter of I'm not going to take the money from these race directors just because of who I am and go to these races and not perform, but just take the money. Yeah. Um, I could have done that. I could have done that. Could have got a few more years. Long, long, long time. And I just thought these race directors have become my friends. Uh, I'm not going to do that. It's just, it's just not right. Yeah. So I, I got out on top. And um, it was the right thing to do, and, and never once did I regret it. That's brilliant. I, I love that. Did you did you win the transition from you know being this this you know elite athlete? I know many athletes, including me, have struggled with the end of their time and and moving on into other things in their lives. How how was that for you? That transition out. Um, once I made the decision. I honestly think my coach and family had a harder time. Did they didn't believe me? John, <laughs> but John basically said I just needed six months sabbatical mm-hmm. and I'd be back. Yeah. Um, but I was such a fierce competitor that I knew I was done. Yeah. So it was really easy. It was not a problem whatsoever. And I mean, I was pretty secure money wise, so that I could make a decision what I was going to do next. And and I, my big decision was. Was I going to come back to New Zealand or was I going to stay here in the United States? And to be really honest, I'm actually a pretty private person and I made the decision that if I go back to New Zealand, I'm, I'm going to be a figurehead in New Zealand um, for the rest of my life. Yeah. And, you know, and that, uh, you know, that's be a big fish in a small pond. Um, I wasn't sure that I, I wanted to do that. And so I stayed here. I knew I could go back to New Zealand anytime I wanted to. Yep. And I was based out in Boise, Idaho, and, and that's where I trained. And I got asked to bring a big event to Boise. Would I help found a big event? And I did. And in 1993, I founded what eventually became the largest women's, women's only event in the United States. Wow, cool. Um, so I did that. I, I switched and put my passion into building something. So that was easy. So that was only like a year later that I started putting my passion into that and I wanted women of all shapes and sizes and abilities and ages to participate in a 5k so it was like I took my story and then used it as a platform to encourage women of all ages to come out and participate in a 5k wonderful so it was a pretty quick pretty quick changeover yep um and and so you know so that was that part made it easy too. And how have you transitioned? Like so so what have you done? Have you remained in the sport since that time? And you know in, in the in the years since, how has your career developed from there? Well, similar to yours, actually speaking, 
Um, and, you know, being, I was a former school teacher, as I said. So mm-hmm. a lot of what I did when I went to events, um, Nike always wanted you to have your platform. And my platform was always to go into schools and speak. Mm-hmm. So I continued doing that to, uh, at events that I, that I had raced. Um, race directors would bring me back, you know, even after retiring. So I did that. I, the event in Boise took up enormous Huge. amounts of my time and energy. So, um, so yes, got into speaking and then continuing and with the stayed event. in that whole yes, yes, in, yes. That, in that space right up until mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. And I've seen you in a um, doco that was played on New Zealand TV, and I've forgotten the name of it now. But you were you were um, you were uh, featuring in it, um, and I, I I can't remember the name for the, the life of me now. Was it the spin-off? The, the the documentary is like it's only about fourteen minutes long. Yes, yes, yes. It was yes. the shortest one on, on yes. your story, and it was an interesting, uh, an interesting story. Um, and your name is like when I was growing up, you know, you like Rod Dixon, Dick Quacks, uh, um, Don Walker. Yeah, of course, and and course. Ray Moller and um, Alison Alison yep. Rowe, uh, who uh-huh. I've been chasing for an interview. Alison, if you're listening, <laughs> need to get you on. <laughs> um, all of these were your, your heroes, you know. The, they were the stars of the of the track and field world. Um, so names that, you, that I grew up with. So you know, it's a real honour to meet you today, and I've really enjoyed our <laughs> our, our, our chat. What do you think? Um, is from from a what did you actually learn out of your sport? What you know, like when I when I look back at the stuff that I did and even the hard failures and the you know the crap that you went through, what does it teach you for life and how have you carried that forward into your life? Well, I think um, in terms of what we've all had to deal with the last two years, yeah, um, it was the easiest thing for me to deal with. Because I think the discipline and the lifestyle that I had to live as a professional athlete is you don't do this, you don't do that, you stay away from people who are sick, you live a very focused, disciplined, quiet, calm life where you're just focused on your own health. I didn't have a problem going through what we've had to go through. And, you know, here we were locked down as well, mm. uh, forget how long it was, and but we were able to... I could still go out and exercise in my neighborhood. Yeah. So I could, I could still get outdoors. But in terms of the simplicity of life, that part was the easiest. I mean, I had friends and they were going around, they were just going out, out of their minds because mm. they did not know what to do with their time. Uh, and, and so for me, it was just absolutely easy because I put myself back into professional athlete mode. Mm-hmm. Exercise, eat, sleep, read go out in the yard, whatever, but it was really easy. Um, and I think if you can learn to live a very simple life, which we do learn, we learn to live a very disciplined, focused, but also a very simple life as professional athletes, that if you can learn to do that, that's one of the greatest gifts that you get because so many people just need so much to keep them occupied and 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 entertained and that's what I learned through all of this is I watched a whole bunch of people just go nuts because they just didn't have all their stuff going on in their lives and they didn't know how to manage that 
Yeah, very, very good point. And bringing things back down to basics is probably a, a good lesson for us all. And I think, you know, what's what's come out for me out of this, these, uh, well, there's many, many, many aspects and, you know, some of them not so great, but uh, I think uh, the the things that you value, you know, what's mm-hmm. what's important to you, like family and, and uh, yeah, slowing the whole pace of life down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like we're not being able to travel, we're not being able to, to do all of those sorts of things anymore. And and sometimes, you know, you think, oh, gosh, it would be nice to hop on a plane and, and go somewhere yeah. for sure. Well, uh, I'm, <clears> desperate to, I'm desperate to get back. I mean, <laughs> this, is the, this is the longest I've – well, I've never been. I've always managed to get back to wow. New Zealand one, once a year, so now – yeah, I we're looking at maybe 2023 because um, you know my husband has to um, um, has to be able to get the time off to be able to come and spend the amount of time in New Zealand that we usually do. So we can't plan for 2022. So yeah. that'll be th- that'll be three years, you know. Yeah. And, I, and I mean, and I I miss New Zealand. There's a lot of times where people think you know I'm here because. Well, you know, the United States and whatever, she's living in the United States. I miss New Zealand. It just happened to be that life brought me here. Yeah. And then, you know, I met my husband and, and he's born and bred in the town I'm living in. Yeah. This is his hometown. Yeah. And and so um, that's where life that's took where me. You made that, life. that doesn't mean I don't miss New Zealand terribly. That's nice to hear. <laughs> and yeah. we would love to have you back. <laughs> yeah. Come um, look, Anne, you've been really lovely to talk to today, and I've really enjoyed your uh, you, your insights into your career, your incredible achievement achievements. Um, you're, you've definitely been a role model for women and for women from New Zealand in the running scene. So thank you very much for your for your time and your um, and your incredible career. And I and I wish you all the best. And I look forward oh. to seeing this doco that's coming out shortly. Yeah, um, hopefully this year sometime. Um, and it's been a long time coming because I don't think people really realise. If it, you know, if it wasn't for a small group of runners on that day in 1981, Michael Jordan and the Dream Team would never have been in Barcelona. <laughs> wow. That's it. Yeah, 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 exactly. And thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com. 